0: Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, sound systems and counterculture. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here, not as usual, with my friend Tim Lawrence because Tim is still on holiday. This is going to be a solo episode and what I'm going to be talking about today is the history of the New Left, at least up until the mid-70s and to some extent beyond. We thought this would be a really useful contribution to the narrative because We've talked about the New Left in various ways. We've used the phrase quite a lot. We've talked some about what it means, but we haven't really gone into it as a specific object of historical inquiry. And in particular, we think it's really interesting to think about what's happening with the New Left at this point in the mid-70s where the historical narrative of the show has got up to. And one reason we think that in particular is so interesting is because there is this very widespread, widely disseminated narrative about the new left especially the american new left which essentially claims that what happens to the new left which this narrative identifies almost exclusively with the 60s student movement is that it terminates at the beginning of the 70s with the descent into militant terrorism on the part of some factions that have emerged from Organizations like Students for a Democratic Society and have adopted the kind of radical paramilitary tactics that we would also associate with groups like the Red Brigades in Italy and the Red Army Faction in Germany. This is the story according to which the Students for a Democratic Society starts off as this pacifist civil rights organisation, gets radicalised by Vietnam and Black Power, and it ends up with a bunch of kids calling themselves the Weathermen, Uh, all the weather underground, uh, trying to blow things up. Uh, Some of them then spending some time in prison before eventually mostly becoming relatively successful academics. This is a narrative you still hear. I hear this on, in particular, like American millennial left type podcasts all the time. And it's a narrative which is just really simplistic. And it just ignores the fact that, well, actually, a lot of things came out of the new left, other than, you know, a few dozen people planting bombs at corporate offices or whatever and a lot of the things that came out of the new left at that time are still with us today so that narrative according to which the new left just ends in the early 70s is very much part of the general sort of hippie phobic anti-60s anti-new left sort of narrative which you get both from conservatives and liberal and i shouldn't say both i should say from conservatives and from liberals and from sort of all a certain strand of orthodox uh, leftist and part of the point of this show is always to challenge that narrative which is just not historically very accurate so in order to tell that story about what is happening in the new to the new left in the early 70s and by the mid 70s we have to think a little bit about well what that term new left means where it comes from who and what it's referring to And I will also end up saying a bit about its subsequent history after the mid-70s. But I'm going to start just by thinking about the terms, And in fact, I'm going to think not just about the term new left, but the term left in general. I mean, because the whole point about having a new left is there must have been an old left. The term doesn't make any sense without one. And the question then is, what is meant by the old left? So the term new left starts to get used in various circles in France, in Britain, and the United States between the mid-50s and the early 60s. And it can still be used today to refer to a set of political and intellectual currents, at least in the English-speaking world, that emerged distinctively around that time and to some extent have continued to this day. But it's worth asking ourselves then, will... In what sense was this left new? In what sense was it left? What do any of these terms actually mean? And in order to answer that question, I think we have to say something about the history of the term left in itself. Now, to get through all that story properly, it probably is going to end up taking two episodes, because I'm going to have to go back to the French Revolution, get us all the way up to the 1950s, when the old left is really at its height, and then explain the emergence of the new left and its subsequent history. So probably what we're going to do in this episode is do that first historical stretch, say from the birth of the term left in the French Revolution up to the 1950s and the birth of the so-called New Left. And then what we'll do in the next episode is go from the birth of the New Left up to the mid-70s and beyond. In that next episode, we will have loads of music. Um, In this one, I think we will have a little burst of music when we're looking at the sort of early folk and even folk rock of the 40s, 50s and early 60s. But from next week, we shall be back having lots of musical tracks scattered through the show. But now, let's get back to this narrative about the genesis, the prehistory, genesis, and birth and fate of the new left.
1: Love is, love is, love is the message.
0: So, where where does the left come from? Well, if, for those who don't know, the terms left and right as designating political positions comes from the French Revolution. Come and uh, during the early stages of the French Revolution, uh, towards the end of the 1780s, the more radical uh, delegates to the National Assembly in France, which became the, the basic, the, the organisational kernel for the revolution, would sit on the left of the chamber and the more conservative delegates would sit on the right. And that is where the terms came from and the terms left and right still to this day i would say broadly designate uh, a difference in political objectives analyses and opinions according to which to be on the left is to be in favor of wholesale systemic change uh, of the society that you live in generally uh, understood to be change in the direction of greater social and political equality and being on the right generally designates uh, resistance to any attempt at radical change, not necessarily because you think it would be undesirable um, to live in a more democratic or more socially equal society, although some people on the right would think that undesirable, but more often because you think that any attempt to make such a outcome come about can only produce more problems than it solves. You know, people on the right usually tell themselves and others that it's actually impossible to achieve the social and political objectives that the left set for itself, and if you try to meet those objectives, you'll just create terrible, hideous dictatorships. I mean, how people on the right today explain the fact that, you know, a lot of what people on the political right have been saying was impossible since the 1780s has often turned out to be possible and desirable, uh, and yet you know people on the right still keep saying that any more change or any more progress is impossible i just don't know I, don't, I, I mean i honestly i do i mean i have friends who consider themselves political conservatives who are you know if you i i've got friends who are in the conservative party and I have to say, this isn't something I've ever sat down and talked to them about, really. But honestly, I don't really... I don't understand how you situate yourself explicitly on the political right in 2023, knowing that the people who have situated themselves on the political right since those terms came into existence at the end of the 18th century were opposed to women's suffrage, were opposed to slavery, were opposed to the factory reforms, were in favour of child labour. sorry, they weren't opposed to slavery, opposed to the abolition of slavery. They were in favor of child labor. They were in favor of uh, dictatorial forms of monarchy or restrictions of the democratic franchise to uh, small elite social groups, etc, etc. They were against mass education <laughs> and you know it was the people on the, it was always the people on the left who were arguing for those things and campaigning and fighting for those things so I really don 't know how, how anybody who knows any history manages to situate themselves on the political. Uh, right. Well, I do. I know a bit actually, because the people I know who do that will tend to have a story that they tell themselves, at least, about how actually various kinds of conservative and liberal, who you might think of being on the right, were always in favour of various kinds of reform, uh, which is true. It's also uh, undeniably true that they were always a, an absolute minority within. Anything you could call the political right, whereas the majority of reformers have always been on the left. So, how you look at the past 200 years and and still think, yes, I'm on the right, I just don't really know. But there we go. This is a left wing podcast. We make no apologies for it. That is what the term meant broadly. It meant then in the French Revolution and its aftermath, it meant being in favour of radical change. I mean, one way of under- actually answering this question in a slightly more sympathetic way about what, how why do people situate themselves on the right would be to think about the critiques of revolutionary French politics coming from people like the godfather of Anglophone conservatism, the Irish-British philosopher Edmund Burke in the late 18th century. And Burke said, you know, Burke was not opposed to reform. What he was opposed as such... What he was opposed to was any attempt at radical reform. He was opposed to the idea that you can achieve radical change, that you can achieve very rapid change at any given time in history without causing terrible harm. Um, and you know, that, that probably is a reasonable perspective to take. Um, I just think it's quite clear that the vast majority of people who've situated themselves on the political right historically have not been in favour of gradual reform. They have been in favour of no reform. Uh, They have been opposed to reform. But there we go. The question then, though, of what kind of radical change whether it should be gradual or whether it should be revolutionary in nature, whether it should be social change involving wholesale redistribution of economic and social power, or whether it should just be political change, making sure that as many people as as possible get to vote every few years. Those questions um, have always been contentious and the idea of what it means to be on the left or to be left-wing hasn't always been the same for everybody. You might say that The idea of the left emerges in the French Revolution at exactly the moment when what has been essentially a liberal project is in the process of radicalising itself such that its most radical elements are going to become something recognisable to us as a left-wing, even a proto-socialist project. Now, what do I mean by all these terms? Well, it's worth understanding a little bit in order to understand these terms. What we mean when we talk about Ideas like liberalism, radicalism, socialism, conservatism. And the first thing I think to understand is that, at least in, say, Europe and North America, and and in many other parts of the world, really the dominant political project of the modern era, going back to the 16th century, really, is liberalism. It's liberalism which is the defining political project of modernity and the political project against which all others have to some extent defined themselves. And when we talk about liberalism in these terms, what are we talking about? What we are talking about is a political project, a political ideology, a political philosophy, which makes a number of assumptions. Assumptions which are very novel uh, when they first start to emerge, really around the 17th century. What are some of those basic assumptions of liberalism? Well, the first is that, as I often put it, the basic unit of human experience is the individual. It's individuals that make up the human race rather than groups. And this is such a widespread idea today in a liberal culture and society that it can be difficult for people to see how you could see things any other way. But I think it's always worth reflecting that actually in most human cultures that we know about for most of history if you say to a person who are you they're not going to say like I am Jeremy Gilbert they're going to say they might tell you their name but they'll start telling you their family their clan their tribe their village like what their social role is in that place who their parents were they'll tell you how they fit into a social world and it's their location in a social world which is seen as defining them rather than some kind of absolutely personal and private identity which belongs to them above and beyond and prior to any kind of social relationships which might be seen as defining them the idea that in fact (coughs) the 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 basic unit of experience the thing which history happens to is not the nation the tribe the family the clan the dynasty the village but the the person the individual person is a relatively new idea in human historical culture, which emerges at the end of the Middle Ages, arguably. It's not that there are no antecedents. And the whole question of to what extent pre-modern people thought of themselves as individuals, experienced themselves as individuals, experienced themselves uh, as separate from others and having a kind of private life, is debated, It's contested. And it's not something we have time to get into here. But... Just by way of illustration of the extent to which people's conceptions of what it meant to be a private individual person were different in the past, just reflect upon the fact that, for example, in, say, medieval Britain, uh, most people did not live in in houses with private bedrooms. So parents had sex in front of children uh, because there just wasn't any private space, uh, as far as we know. Uh, the whole conception of the private, individualised space of int- for, for intimacy and sleep, um, other than for um, other than for particular kinds of uh, social elite members, uh, is a relatively modern invention. So that's just a very concrete illustration of some of the things I'm talking about. So if we accept then this idea that the whole idea of the individual as you know, the person to whom things happen really emerges in the, around the 17th century, this is the basic idea of liberalism. And the basic idea, the, and then what's built on this idea, is, is the concept that really what, what defines a person and their relationship to the world is their property. So liberalism understands a society society, human society as as a kind of aggregation of individuals and their properties uh, the things that they own uh, their land their bodies their clothes their labor anything else they might own and broadly speaking liberalism tends to maintain and develops a philosophy and a theory and a practice over the 17th 18th into the mid-19th centuries, based on these ideas, it tends to maintain that uh, the proper role of government is to maintain the integrity of individual property rights, above all. So essentially, the point of government is to stop people stealing each other's stuff and interfering with each other. Now, this is quite... Now, this isn't... It's interesting to think about this because the idea that the main job of government is to stop people interfering with each other is quite contrary, say, to more traditional ideas, say, pre-modern ideas, which might say, well, the main job of government is actually to maintain the safety and, and well-being of the people, even if that does mean, say, you know, taxing people, including the wealthy, in order to make some kind of provision for the poor and in order to fund the military, etc. Of course, before the 16th century, if you're talking about places like Western Europe, well, there isn't really much in the way of state institutions funded by direct taxation that, that is also an idea that gets going in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries you know it's an idea which is starting to develop by this, by the, certainly by the early 17th century I mean really it's an idea which is very well developed in, say in England by the mid 16th century the idea that you know to have a modern country you need a state and the state has to be paid for and, and citizens uh, or royal subjects have certain responsibilities to the state and the state has certain responsibilities to them And this kind of idea always exists in a certain tension with the liberal emphasis on the sanctity of the rights of the individual and of individual property rights. And a lot of what develops over the next couple of hundred years is a set of theories and practices and institutions based on trying to work out a kind of workable relationship between the many individuals that make up a society um, between the you know when I say a relationship between them I mean a relationship between them as individuals but also relationships between them and the state which sort of mediates between them at many levels and this is you know becomes the basis for both uh, well it becomes the basis for you're both uh, gradualists sort or of peaceful reform movements in places like Britain in the 18th and 19th century. That, is, that seem to be gradually moving towards something like a modern idea of democratic government. It's the basis for the American Revolution and its claims for uh, you know, the inalienable political rights of the individual. It's also the basis for revolutionary nationalist movements, including the, French, the, the movement which is central to the French Revolutionary Project, and the various national movements of, for national liberation and for the establishment of republican or at least constitutional government in various parts of Europe and all over Latin America and many other parts of the world in the 19th century. That's liberalism to this day I would say liberalism is really the the hegemonic ideology uh, in the capitalist world although liberalism often has to be modified and contested by other things now conservatism I would say is probably the second most important strand of political thought and practice to emerge in the modern period and conservatism essentially emerges in reaction to liberalism Uh, and conservatism tends to take the view that It is contrary to what liberals claim, uh, the individual is not the only basic unit of historical experience. The other important units of experience would be the family, the country, the nation, uh, the community maybe. And the trouble with liberalism is that carried to a certain logical conclusion, it just destroys communities. You know, it leaves the poor bereft of help and assistance, it leaves, and it leaves um, traditional hierarchies of authority between rulers and ruled, priests and their flocks, etc. It leaves all those in tatters. It leaves everybody not really knowing where they are, where they belong, what's right and wrong, what's up and what's down, what their job is in society. And it creates all kinds of harms. In particular, as I've already mentioned, that conservative tradition uh, responds to events like the French Revolution by arguing that even when you want reform, reform has to happen gradually and piecemeal and one step at a time, that if you try and get really radical change, you're just going to end up, as happens in the French Revolution, uh, you know, it's going to end up with authoritarian governments executing all their enemies. And that conservative tradition... Is also tends to be informed by a certain scepticism about the ability of human beings to come up with grand blueprints which can radically change society and make everybody's lives better. And it tends to think you're better off, really, with the devil you know. You're better off muddling along with the institutions and ways of doing things that you've got at any one time even if you might be willing to gradually change them and gradually modify them in the direction of some more egalitarian social objectives. But broadly speaking in effect conservatism tends to be in favor of existing established ways of doing things including established distributions of property including established distributions of authority and power in a society at any one time that's where the name comes from it wants to conserve while the liberal while liberals want to liberate the individual from the bonds of community and tradition conservatism wants to conserve those things. I think we can also identify a third tradition which, yeah, has some antecedents going back into ancient times through the middle ages, really starts to starts to flicker in and out of existence in the 17th century and really starts to develop strongly from the late 18th century onward. And that's it. We might call this a radical tradition, and we might just call it a socialist tradition. Those terms are not exactly coterminous with each other, they don't mean exactly the same thing, they're not exactly synonymous, but uh, they can be used more or less interchangeably for much of the period from the early 19th century to the present. I would say the radical tradition tends to be critical of both conservatism and liberalism. It tends to both be conservative... It, the radical tradition generally agrees with some of the conservative critique of liberalism, in that it sees that liberalism just tends to create a society in which individuals are constantly competing with each other, when it would be better if they were cooperating with each other. It tends to actually reproduce existing relations of power and authority by allowing people with large amounts of property to keep it all rather than redistributing it. But the radical tradition is also critical of conservatism's wish to preserve existing hierarchies and existing inequalities. The radical tradition wants to do away with those, and whereas where, where liberalism wants to sort of do away with community in general, for the most part, apart in less communities mediated by market relations, by buying and selling stuff to each other, and where conservatism wants to preserve traditional communities the radical tradition tends to want to imagine new kinds of community, new kinds of collectivity in which people can work together cooperatively and creatively and nobody has to go hungry and everybody gets a say but everybody also uh, contributes to the effort of creating the greater good. So, uh, and that radical tradition takes various forms but I would say that the you could say it takes some... Um, Various forms, and gets various names, and has various flavours, but they all have those things in common. Whether you're talking about socialism, anarchism, communism, social democracy, that radical tradition, because radical means going to the root, so it, it means believing in sort of fundamental change. But it and it, and the radical tradition wants the society as a whole, collectively, to make fundamental change to itself. Whereas liberalism tends to just want to remove all possible restrictions on individuals and just allow the kind of free activity of individuals to have whatever social and political effect it's going to have. And conservatism tends to want to conserve traditional uh, and established uh, modes of doing things, including traditional social hierarchies. Now, as is radicalism, the radical tradition is what will end up being associated with the idea of the political left. You know, whereas when the term first emerges in the French Revolution, the the people sitting on the left of the National Assembly include a lot of people who today we would call liberals, as well as a tiny number of people that we would recognise as radicals by our standards. This idea of the division between right and left. Um, Develops over the first half of the nineteenth century into the and into the early twentieth century, um, with the idea that on the left of the political spectrum there, as I've said, are the various radicalisms of communism, socialism, anarchism, social democracy. On the right, there are the developing forms of conservative politics, most notably various forms of nationalism, and in the centre there is liberalism of various kinds. The thing that really transforms. Of kinds of radicalism which have a basically liberal character in the late 18th century into what we would recognize as some kind of socialism by say the 1830s and 1840s is the experience of the industrial revolution whereas the French Revolution is essentially a political revolution. It's driven very much by the commercial interest and frustrations of the growing middle class in the cities like Paris, and by the growing political restiveness of an emerging working class in Paris. But broadly speaking, uh, it's it's still remembered as mainly a political revolution, a, a movement for a, a new political order, a new order of political institutions. What happens over in first in Britain and then in other parts of the world over the course of the 18th and 19th century is that the industrial revolution gives people an experience of radical social, economic, technological change, completely transforming the way people live. People move from the countries to live in the cities, they're working in these factories instead of the fields. The stuff that people have, that people use in their everyday lives, is increasingly stuff which is. Bought in, bought at a market or in a shop or from a trader or from a travelling trader, from a merchant, which has been made in a factory somewhere rather than being bought from a craftsperson who made it locally or being made domestically in the home. So people are experiencing change not just on a political scale, not just in terms of who gets to govern whom, on what basis, who gets to vote, etc., People are experiencing change in every aspect of their lives because of this fundamental technological and economic change that's taking place. And this increasingly gives rise to the sense that, well, if we are going to live through processes of incredibly dramatic technological, social, economic, cultural and political change, then those processes ought to be one which are directed by Uh, the collective will of the people rather than just sort of happening because capitalists are running around, uh, you know, building factories, uh, colonising places and making loads of money from it. And that is the basic idea, really, which ends up informing the political tradition of socialism, the idea that rather than just allowing the process of free market industrial capitalism to run riot over the world like transforming it everywhere it goes running willy-nilly if we're going to have to live through this kind of radical change anyway then we should do it in a way which means that everybody who's going to be affected by it has a say over the way in which it's, it, it unfolds and everybody as much as possible should benefit from it equally. So by the mid-19th century, uh, the ideas of radical socialist thinkers like Karl Marx and Friedrich Friedrich Engels have already become fairly well-developed, and their idea that, well, you could, you know, you ought to have a politics which seeks to use the state to really take control of the most important sectors of the economy, the railways, the factories, etc., in order to uh, plan the way the economy develops in order to make sure that it benefits everybody. All this is fairly well established over the course of the second half of the nineteenth century and into the early twentieth century. You see, you start to see some significant crystallizations of distinctive positions within the left, distinctive traditions which are quite different from each other. Uh, most, no, most obviously, you, you see the distinction between the socialist and anarchist traditions. Don't have time to get into this in any detail. In really crude terms, uh, the anarchist tradition tends to be much more sceptical. That, for example, if you get a really left-wing government into power in a society with a highly centralised state, then they will just do really good things. Uh, the anarchists tend to think that, you know, even socialists and communists and Marxists, if they if they get huge amounts of power in their hands through a uh, very centralised state apparatus, they will inevitably use it to benefit small groups of them. It won't lead to a genuinely democratic and non-hierarchical society. Uh, socialists tend to be a bit less sceptical about the state. They tend to think that the anarchists desire to create completely different kinds of institutions that are not really state institutions, that are entirely from the ground up, entirely democratic. They're based on workers' councils in factories or local village communes or something that all those ideas sound very nice, but they're completely unworkable, that those kind of organisations can never really compete with uh, the military and industrial power of capitalist and imperialist and their governments, and if you're going to fight all those people then you're going to have to have more disciplined and centralised forms of organisation like they've got, and then really crude terms, that's, that's the difference. And over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century, differences of opinion really develop on well, how you should go about trying to build a socialist or or even an anarchistic society. Whereas it, in the mid-19th century, it seemed obvious to thinkers like Marx that some kind of violent revolution, presumably one based on organised industrial workers, was the only way you are going to get there. By the early 20th century in places like Britain and Germany and France it's starting to seem quite plausible that well you might have a situation in which you have mass suffrage and mass democracy and everybody can vote and then you might just have workers socialist parties eventually being voted into government through peaceful elections and then they might actually implement a a socialist programme gradually over a long period. And that um, would be preferable to anybody having to experience the violent trauma of a military violent revolution and you might look at the history say of countries like sweden norway and austria between uh, say uh, between well from the 1930s in the case of sweden from the 1940s after the war in the case of say austria uh, up until really the 1990s and say yeah they, i mean those look like countries where something like that was happening it was or it was on the way uh, to being built a, a post-capitalist sort of socialist society and on the other hand you had people who argued that ultimately uh, capitalist power that would always corrupt any government that had been simply elected by a workers' party in a parliamentary democracy that was still dominated by huge inequalities of wealth, by liberal ideas and institutions, etc. And that if you wanted to really replace all those things with a genuinely socialist alternative, ultimately you would always have to engage in some kind of violent revolution. And after the 1917 Bolshevik revolution in Russia, which seemed to have done exactly that, Uh, Really, there's a kind of international split between people who think that the Russians have shown how you do it, how you have a properly socialist revolution and start to build a socialist state. And those are the people, those people will tend to start calling themselves communists. The term communism has been around since the 1840s, but it's not widely used. And when Marx and Engels published the Communist Manifesto in 1848, I mean, it's almost a bit of a joke to call yourself a communist. It's like a provocation. A you know, communist is like a insulting term which is thrown at socialists and other ra- and very radical liberal reformers in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, Because the idea of communism, the idea of truly making everything collective, getting rid of private property, is seen as this terrifying idea, both by liberals and conservatives in that time. So not that many people went around saying, I am a communist, really, until after the Russian Revolution. It's after the Russian Revolution that the Bolshevik Party changes its name to the Communist Party, actually. Generally speaking, when people call themselves communists for most of the 20th century, it means they are fundamentally loyal to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, to the idea of the Russian Revolution as the definitive political event of the 20th century. And the people who still call themselves socialists tend to be more sceptical about that, either because they are believers in more gradual types of social and reform, political reform, or in some cases, because they're very radical sorts of communists who don't actually believe that the Soviet Union is a is a communist country. I mean those sort of people do often call themselves socialists. Really from 1917 onwards, uh, the the political left internationally I'd say broadly speaking divided between these two main traditions, the socialist reformist tradition which tends to be skeptical about How far you can get with violent revolution and the communist tradition, which tends to, which looks to the Russian Revolution as a model. But broadly speaking, despite their their differences, those traditions they they share a number of key features. They share uh, a very strong emphasis on uh, working class institutions as a basis for political organisation. In other words, trade unions, basically they share an emphasis on the idea of... the state and using a relatively highly centralised state to deliver significant social reforms for people, whether you're talking about the Soviet model, where the state controls the entire economy, or whether you're talking about a model like you get in Britain after World War II, where, you know, the state controls maybe 20 to 30 percent of the economy, it controls national infrastructure and energy and transport, it makes available various kinds of universal service provision like education and healthcare, etc., the anarchist tradition doesn't really survive much in the first half after the first half of the 20th century but it will sort of come back as we will see in our story. The last great efflorescence of anarchism as an organized political force is during the Spanish Civil War between the left-wing republican government and a fascist insurgent coup which eventually takes over the country. Uh, The Spanish Civil War happens in the second half of the 1930s and in Spain, especially in places like uh, Catalonia, it's the anarchist wing of the trade union movement and the radical socialist movement, which is actually stronger than the socialist or communist wings. Um, They have these very democratic principles of everything being discussed and deliberated amongst everybody before any political traditions are taken, political decisions are taken. They um, Uh, But the defeat of the Republican forces by the fascists um, at at the end of the Spanish Civil War, the fascists, uh, I would say, you know, Franco, I would say Franco was a fascist, really. He was certainly backed by and allied with the fascist powers of Germany and Italy. That defeat uh, really is the end of anarchism as a sort of distinctive organized political force in most of the world. But anarchist ideas have remained potent in many ways to this day.
1: Without music, life would be a mistake. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Love is a Message. My name is Tim. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, along with Jem and our fantastic producer, Matt. We love doing the show. Uh, we're just completely convinced that this format will enable us to kind of dig as deep as we possibly want to into music and bring in as much cultural and political and economic analysis alongside that music as we, we could dream of uh whatever we're doing here is going quite a bit beyond anything we've managed in, even in, in, in our book so far. Uh, we've also been doing this for a year and a half now. Uh, research and recording takes up a fair chunk of time, so if you can support us by visiting our Patreon page and making a small monthly donation, we'd be incredibly grateful and it will certainly encourage us to keep on going with even more gusto than we've managed so far. Um, if you do support us, you'll get lots of extra content that we record for our dear patrons, so that's something you can also also look forward to. Thanks again for listening. If you can't afford to donate, don't worry about it. Uh, Just keep on tuning in. If you can donate, amazing. Thanks very much.
0: So after World War II, uh, especially after the defeat of Italy, Germany, the other fascist powers, by a coalition of the American and British governments, and the Soviet Union, that is really the time when you can say something like uh, the what we would now think of as the old left is really at its historical peak. The Soviet Union under Stalin dominates Eastern Europe, is the second biggest military power in the world, is arguably the second biggest economic power in the world, or one um, it certainly seems to be very impressive in terms of how rapidly it's industrialising and modernising up to the point where the Soviets in the 1950s are the first country to send uh, satellites into space and the first country to send a human a human astronaut into orbit around the Earth. Um, at the same time the social democratic tradition is really at its peak at this time this is immediately after World War II is when the New Deal administration is still in power in the United States. The Labour government elected in 1945 is still remembered in Britain as the only, the one truly radical reforming government of the era of mass suffrage, mass democracy, the one that created the National Health Service, uh, the extended uh, public uh, education up until um, the age of 15. And for... Uh, everybody in the country, which um, kicked off the expan- post-war expansion of the universities, although that wouldn't really get going till the sixties on much scale. This is the great sort of uh, golden age of what we might call the old left. This relatively statist, workerist version of the left—a left which is ba- which really the, the, this great peak of coincides precisely with the era of Fordism, which we've talked about on the show before. You know, Fordism, with its emphasis on mechanised production, on highly centralised forms of economic management, etc., really fits with and suits a kind of forms of socialist politics or even a communist politics, which since the mid-19th century has placed a lot of faith in the idea of a centralised state and a centralised economic infrastructure. When we talk about the old left today, we are really still talking about forms of left-wing politics which have their roots in that history and have their really have their golden age in that moment—the moment of post-war full employment, the Soviet Union, etc. I mean, some people would say that really the golden age of that kind of traditional leftism was much earlier; that it was perhaps the period immediately before the First World War, when in in Germany the socialist movement was this mass movement that had cultural and political dimensions. You know, if you were a socialist in Germany in 1910, there were socialist gyms, there were socialist education clubs, there were socialist theatres. You could live your whole life within this sort of socialist culture. And there was great optimism about the likelihood that this movement was gradually but progressively building this completely egalitarian society. So some people would say that was really the sort of golden age of the old left. But either way, the term new left, as it starts to become used in the late 50s, is differentiating the new left from this form of left politics, really which has its peak in the post-war period. It involves a continuum of ideas and practices from uh, the relatively cautious conservative reforming uh, social democracy of the Labour Party in the 1940s and 50s in Britain or the New Deal Democrats, through to uh, the radical anti-capitalist state communism of the Soviet Union under Stalin and Khrushchev. And indeed, uh, China under Mao, uh, which is, uh, again, a, a distinctive thing, which I'll sort of come back to, I think. So it's worth thinking for a moment about this: the period, say, of... From the World War II uh, into the mid '50s, as a sort of as a sort of peak moment for this traditional old leftism, and it's not as if the the old left at that moment didn't have its forms of self-expression, uh, even through music. Um, the interview we posted a couple of weeks ago was with Jesse Jarno, who we were talking to mainly because he's written about. Uh, he's written about things like the Grateful Dead and the um, the American psychedelic distribution networks in the 70s and 80s. But as I mentioned during that interview, Jesse's also written a book about uh, the Weavers, the American leftist folk group, which uh, made Pete Seeger uh, an international star. And the Weavers... Um, were very closely identified with the politics of the Communist Party of the USA. They were responsible for really helping to popularise some of those ideas with certain constituencies. So I thought we could play a couple of bits of music, both of which were initially actually written around 1949-1950, although the most famous recordings of them. Uh, weren't recorded until many years after that. So I think I'm right in saying both of these songs were recorded around 1950. Uh, and one would be The Weavers' "If I Had a Hammer," and uh, the other would be You and McCall, the great Manchester folk singers, uh, famous song "Dirty Old Town." There's lots of versions available of all of these singers singing these songs. You and McCall's "Dirty Old Town." It is today best known for having been uh, covered by the Pogues in the mid-80s. They got the idea for covering it because it had been covered by the Dubliners, kind of Irish, very popular Irish trad group. I think the Dubliners, I think the Dubliners the recording came out around 1970. Maybe it was around 1980. Sometime between 1970, 1980. But I thought we could hear the version of Dirty Old Town that is sung by Ewan McColl and his partner and sister of Pete Seeger of the Weavers, Peggy Seeger, on a recording, there's a recording of them singing it together from 1970. Kissed my girl by the factory wall
1: Dirty old town, dirty old town
0: Seeger and the Weavers, um, as I've said, were these kind of iconic figures of the American left, especially in the early 50s. And their song, If I Had a Hammer, first written, I think, in 1949. But there were various uh, releases of it. The various people covered it and released it over the next few years. So it was first performed publicly in 1949. It was released in 1950. Uh, Didn't do particularly well commercially. It was heard. I mean, the lyrics are fairly, you know, they're not. They're very elusive. You know, they're not explicitly revolutionary or radical. If I had a, if I, you know, if I had a hammer, I would do this and that with it. But it was heard as a sort of uh, a call to arms of a certain kind. And the weavers um, in the second half of the fifties suffered like a lot of other people from the mccarthyite repression of communists within the american entertainment industry but the song was revived and became a hit for folk group peter paul and mary in 1962 and it was then released again um and it was it was peter paul and mary's release of it in 62 that became a top 10 hit and was a really big success and the peter paul and mary version of it which is quite you know very kind of sweet harmony, uh, commercial protest folk uh, hit from the early 60s is also worth hearing. We can hear a bit of that. But then, what's really fascinating to me is is the Trini Lopez version of this song. Trini Lopez is this was this American uh, American uh, guitarist, a sort of sort of rock and roll singer. Uh, Trini was short for Trinidad, and he released a um, he released a single of a cover of If I Had a Hammer in 1963, which got to number three in the American Billboard charts. And it's really sort of fascinating. because This is 1963, and I don't really know what you can call this generically if it's not sort of folk rock. But this is before people like The Birds have emerged and before anything we, we can really refer to as folk rock. It's before Bob Dylan has died playing rock music. So it's really interesting uh, and uh, quite compelling version I think uh, Trini Lopez's version of If I Had a Hammer I had a hammer I had a hammer So you've got a few songs there. Now, Ewan McCall is this iconic figure of the of the British folk revival of the 50s, very closely associated with the politics of the Communist Party and then the campaign for nuclear disarmament from the second half of the 50s onward. Ewan McColl famously you know, became the partner of Peggy Seeger. Peggy Seeger was the sister of Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger is the key figure of the in the Weavers and the author of the song, If I Had a Hammer. Um, McColl's Dirty Old Town, of course, is much less of a kind of call to arms. You know, it's much more a, you know, a a kind of fairly, you know, it's a fairly downbeat description of life in Salford when he's writing it, of life in a blighted industrial urban cityscape. You know, it's really about the kind of slum existence which socialists wanted to do away with in the post-war period rather than being a celebration of something. Uh, but it has really become a sort of anthem for anybody who ever grew up in an industrial, post-industrial area. It's significant, of course, that it's folk music during this time, which is seen as the music of the left. And one of the reasons for that is because the... The Communist International, the International Communist Organization, which was the vehicle through which communist parties around the world effectively took direction from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. The Communist Party, in accordance with general Stalinist aesthetics, had declared that the only really radical kind of music was folk music. I think we've talked about this a bit on the show before, but it's always worth reflecting on this. Whereas in the early stages of the Russian Revolution, it was avant-garde modernism which was seen as the revolutionary kind of music. By the 50s, Stalinist ideology had come to the conclusion that avant gardism was a symptom of bourgeois decadence, that really the only kind of politically radical art was art which in an always kind of kitsch way, trying to make itself accessible to the people without being commercial and capitalist in nature. So whereas most of the actual people might have wanted to listen to commercial jazz or rock and roll or swing music during this period, the Communist Party had this kind of idealised idea of what popular authenticity should be like and what it should sound like, and what it should sound like would be folk music. Of course, most of the people actually making and listening to folk music were not working class. They were certainly not proletarian, but they um, they were, in fact, you know, middle-class intellectuals allied to the leaderships of the Communist Parties. But in the case of somebody like McCall, at least, I think you can see a, a genuinely heartfelt and a a, a quite successful attempt to sort of create a folk music idiom which is proletarian in nature, meaning that it's tied to the uh, and expressive of the experiences of the industrial working class, the urban industrial working class. Of course, this is a bit of a challenge because you know the folk music idioms don't really come from the industrial working class; they come from rural populations and communities. You know whether the, whether you're talking about black sharecroppers in the southern United States or Appalachian farmers in the American mountains. Um, So turning those kind of idioms, which are the ones which a certain kind of authenticist, Stalinist aesthetic thinks are sort of authentically the sound of the people, turning them into something which is also not rural, but industrial and proletarian, remembering that the communist movement and the socialist movement historically has its base not in the countryside, but in the urban cities and factories, turning, you're marrying those things together is actually quite a challenge and you might say that honestly very few people ever really pulled it off Ewan McCall was one of them you know he was a folk singer he was from Manchester he was a leftist and all of these things come together in his music of course you know his his best loved and best remembered music isn't any really a sort of call to revolutionary arms it's this song and you know the sort of beautiful poignant love song um, the first time ever I saw your face
1: the first time ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose in your eyes
0: And perhaps thinking about the sort of aesthetic limitations of the folk idiom uh, as an expression of political radicalism during a period of intense modernisation like the 1950s might give us some clues as to where the new left is going to to emerge from and where the new left is going to go. Because we are now at the point in the story where we, we can talk about the emergence of something like the new left and the terminology of the new left. Now, the way this story is usually told is to say that the real, the moment which marks the the birth of the Anglo-American New Left, especially the British New Left, is the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Again, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but to refresh anyone's memory, if I have, and to just introduce it if I haven't, what happens in 1956 is that the leadership of the Hungarian Communist Party attempts to implement a reform programme which would liberalise the society, which would remove the past Communist Party's controls, everything's like media and artistic expression and education, which would introduce much more democracy into the administration of factories and the economy and the state, uh, Important to stress that there was no desire on the part of the Hungarian communist leadership to actually abolish communism, to bring in you know private kind of capitalist private property rights, etc. But it was all too um, it was it was much too radical and democratic and liberalizing for Stalin, who thought that any such reforms in places like Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Poland or East Germany or Russia itself. Uh, would be were at that time premature that they would only lead to a weakening of communism that they would ultimately lead to the communist bot collapsing under pressure from its political and military rivals in the West and consequently this Soviet Union uh, you know invaded Hungary you know, the, the Soviet Union rolled tanks into cities like Budapest ousted the reforming communist leadership installed a loyal Stalinist anti-democratic authoritarian leadership. Uh, They would do much the same thing uh, 12 years later in in Czechoslovakia in 1968 that I know we have talked about on the show but the invasion of Hungary in 1956 provoked widespread condemnation within the international communist movement. Uh, Many people in the communist parties in places like Britain communist party remember didn't have any MPs in Parliament, but was still seen as a significant political force in Britain in the 50s, 60s and 70s, partly because of its strength within the trade union movement. And this split led to large numbers of people uh, feeling they had to withdraw from the Communist Party, to leave the Communist Party. In Britain, you can think of a a novel like Doris Lessing's novel, The Golden Notebook, uh, published in the late 50s and still to my mind, you know, one of the great, the greater English language novels of that period or to some extent any period really. It's an absolutely extraordinary book. Um, you know, and it, and one of the many things The Golden Notebook is about, um, it was first published in 1962. It's about, you know, the kind of mental struggles of people who saw themselves as loyal communists uh, under the impact of things like the invasion of Hungary and these splits within the left, which it provoked well, what happens from 1956 onwards, is you get a whole range of groups, publications, organisations, ideas emerging, which see themselves as wanting to carry forward a socialist leftist tradition, often a radically democratic one, which borrows a little bit from some anarchist ideas, um, and which wants to distinguish itself, differentiate itself from the supposed leftism, both of the Stalinist Soviet Union and its allies around the world, but also from the increasingly kind of weak reformism of, say, the Labour Party in Britain or the Democratic Party in the United States. It's worth keeping in mind that also what's also happening by the late 50s, say, in Britain and the States, is that the great radical reforming project, which is, gets underway in 1932 in the States with the beginning of the New Deal. In 1945, in Britain, with the election of the Attlee Labour government, uh, led by Clement Attlee, I should say, um, that by the late 1950s, it seems apparent that in both of those cases, the reforming energy has really gone out of um, the project, that that it doesn't look like we are heading towards some kind of radically post-capitalist, non-capitalist society by means of progressive reform. In both of those countries, the political right, the conservative or Republican parties have been uh, in power in different ways for uh, much of the 50s. The parties of the left are reoriented, have reoriented themselves towards a much more gradualist, much more pro-capitalist, much less ambitious and also... Uh, political agenda and also one which is not very critical of expansive American military imperialism around the world. So by the late 1950s, you get a situation where people want to define a new kind of left-wing politics, which is true to the radicalism of the socialist tradition, but is also very democratic in the way that it organises itself and in its political aspirations, which is anti-imperialist, anti-militarist and anti-authoritarian. In Britain, uh, the leading figure of this new left uh, initially is arguably the great British radical historian E.P. Thompson, Edward Thompson. Thompson is best known for his monumental historical study, first published again in the early 60s, I think. Yeah, 1963, a year after the Golden Notebook. Uh, His book, The Making of the English Working Class, the core theoretical argument of which is that the industrial working class in england didn't just sort of emerge as a crystallized product of the industrial revolution which is sort of how he how he thinks people like marx have presented it instead the working class sort of makes itself through the process of struggle against the enclosures of the common land the denial of traditional rights to rural people the exploitation of industrial populations etc and this emphasis on the working class making itself emerging you know, out of the out of struggle rather than just being sort of forced into existence by industrialization and capitalism this is really consistent with thompson 's belief in a polit- in a grassroots bottom up democratic politics as opposed to What had become the politics of party communism was placed a very strong emphasis on sort of electing leaders like your Lenins and your Stalins, but then allowing them to lead. And it often treated the kind of ordinary party members and activists as sort of foot soldiers, whereas these these great leaders were seen as the generals, like directing their armies in the class war. All this was anathema to people like Thompson, who thought that, well, actually... the workers' movement and the communist and socialist movements should be democratic movement in which everybody has a say... Again, it's worth reflecting, the last time anybody had actually had a political movement like that in Britain, it had really been the anarchists in the Spanish Civil War, who had democratically elected the leaders of their regiments or the people running their factories, etc. There's often relatively little reference to the anarchist tradition in the writings of the early British New Left, partly because that anarchist tradition had been very, very weak organisationally and ideologically in Britain. Not absent completely... You know the british anarchist paper freedom and freedom press the the publishing house associated with it and the bookshop in Whitechapel and east London freedom books have all been around for decades and decades freedom the magazine has been published in some form or another since the early i think since about nineteen hundred so there always has been an anarchist presence an anarchist tradition but it's been very very small and largely confined to you know very sort of culturally advanced urban centres like. I mean, really, East London leads sometimes. Okay, so that is where things have got to by the late 1950s, uh, when Edward Thompson launches a short-lived journal called The New Reasoner, uh, putting forward some of his uh, political ideas. At the same time, a group of student radicals, uh, including Stuart Hall, uh, set up another short-lived Periodical called New Live, called Universities and Left Review. And then in 1960, these things emerged together into the journal New Left Review, the first editor of which is Stuart Hall. Now, New Left Review still exists today. Uh, I would say the politics of New Left Review today are fairly different and they are much more sort of old left, to be honest, than. Uh, the politics of Hall and his colleagues at, at the moment of the f- foundation of New Left Review in 1960, there's a whole story to be told about how it is the New Left Review becomes the old Left Review, really, which is what it is today. Um, but we won't have time, I think, to tell that particular story. But at the moment of New Left Review's founding, it is seen as you know, the, the, one of the organs of this emerging formation, the New Left, uh, of course, right from the start, there is a degree of tension within the idea of the new left, or maybe by the mid-sixties there's a tension between two at least two different conceptions of it. Um both of the what they have in common is their anti-Stalinism and their hostility to what they see as the sort of collaborationist politics in class terms of the Labour Party and the Democratic party in the United States you know they think that the the leaderships of those parties certainly the right wings of those parties they just want to you know they want to just collaborate with capitalists in producing sort of profitable comfortable but fundamentally very unequal types of industrial capitalist society Um, so what the different strands of the new left have in common is the critique both of Stalinism and that sort of class collaborationist politics of the right wing of the reform movement. But there are sort of at least two different ways in which you can occupy that position of being on the radical left and critical of all those different other traditions within the left. On the one hand, you can be someone like Thompson, like Hall, like Raymond Williams, the great intellectual figure of the British New Left at that time, who really want to hold on to and accentuate a particular tradition of grassroots organisation, democratic organisation, democratic politics, democratic aspiration. In Britain, you can trace it back through organisations like the Independent Labour Party. In the States, you could trace it back to organisations like the Industrial Workers of the World. But that tradition has never had that much to do with the sort of Bolshevik tradition. On the other hand, you can also occupy this position of being you know, against the right-wing reformists and against the Stalinists, but also on the radical left, and see yourself in a quite different tradition, and that would be the tradition of Trotskyism. So Leonid Trotsky is arguably the second most important figure in the Russian Revolution after Vladimir Lenin. He's the figure who Lenin seems to have wanted to be his successor when he died, but he's politically outmaneuvered by Stalin and sort of replaced by Stalin. Eventually Trotsky has to go into exile while Stalin is leader of the Communist Party. Eventually the Soviet secret services assassinate and kill Trotsky. But Trotsky by that point has already become the figurehead of an international movement of radical communists who think that the Russian Revolution has gone in the wrong direction, that the Russian, Revo- that the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union under Stalin has gone in the wrong direction, has become imperialist, using its industrial and military power to dominate the whole region of Eastern Europe and the Baltic and the Balkans and many other parts of the world, um, that it's become authoritarian, it's become traditional it's in, in many of its social attitudes and too conservative. And that, the, and within that tradition, it's understood that the person who really had to critique of all this, the people who wanted an international workers' revolution, who never wanted the Soviet Union to just settle for being a socialist country in a world of mostly capitalist countries, the person who um, really understood all this uh, was Trotsky. And the Trotskyist tradition is very different from that kind of more libertarian, slightly anarchistic, sort of grassrootsy um, traditions or set of traditions, which you, which I referred to before, within the Trotskyist movement, there's still a strong emphasis on party discipline. There's an emphasis on quite centralised forms of political organisation a lot of the time. And often a very kind of austere attitude, you know, there's a real belief in the value of being a sort of full-time revolutionary who doesn't really have much of a life outside of revolutionary political struggle in the historical style of a Lenin or a Trotsky. And those two different traditions will always sit together quite uneasily within the space of the emerging new left in both Britain and the United States. And the tensions between them will sort of keep um, cropping up, will keep manifesting themselves over the course of the 60s and 70s. But at the moment, we've got to now in the narrative, let's say 1960, we can say that something calling itself the New Left has started to emerge, that it is defined by... Uh, is. A commitment to the historic radical tradition, the historic radical aspiration, going back to the even to the French Revolution, of a fundamental transformation of, of a society in a direction which will be both democratic and egalitarian. But at the same time, it's characterised by a libertarian belief in the value of freedom and personal expression and social and aesthetic experimentation in a way that the Stalinist and even the Trotskyist traditions have sort of moved away from or even actively suppressed. And, and it's that really, it's that set of attitudes which characterises the new left and which differentiates it from the old left at the point where we've got to around nineteen sixty. So I'm going to leave it there so we can have a break. I think I've explained the genesis of the idea of the new left. What we'll do in the next part of this discussion of the new left is talk about what the new left actually looked and and felt like and thought like over the course of the 1960s and how this developed up to and even beyond the mid-1970s.